Amen. It's good to see you. You can go ahead and please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18 and beginning in verse 15 is where we'll be today. Let's look at Matthew chapter 18. What we've been seeing through the gospel according to Matthew is, is Jesus showing us what the kingdom of God looks like, what the kingdom of God is, and how people who are citizens of the kingdom, how they live how Christians are meant to live in the kingdom of God. And today, Jesus is going to teach us about something that is really highly controversial. Um, so today's sermon might feel a little different. There's not going to be a lot of illustrations. There's not going to be like a lot of like funny jokes. There won't be Because I think what this is, is requires so much um, intense thought and awareness into what Jesus is giving. And it's, what he's teaching us is about church discipline. What happens, really, when Christians sin? What do we do? And not only just that, but what happens when someone professes to be a Christian and they, and they won't stop sinning and they don't care to stop sinning? What happens when a Christian refuses to listen to their other Christian members of the church and they refuse to listen to the church? Well, Jesus says, here's what we should do. And he lines it out for us in Matthew 18, 15 through the end, verse 35. And so if you're able, let's stand together in honor of reading the word of Christ. It'll also be up on the screen. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, Tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter you you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. Well, then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. And since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, I, I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. While the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy 
on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you went to the doctor and he told you, and I, I have a friend that this, is, this has happened to, this kind of thing. He told you, you have to stop eating red meat. And you've got to lose about 15, 20-ish pounds, or you are going to accelerate a, a heart condition that, that you have. What would you think? What would you say back to the doctor giving you that, that news? Would you say, you're being really unloving right now. I like red meat. I like the way it makes me feel. I like the way it tastes. I'm going to another doctor. I don't want to see you anymore. So you go to another doctor. And he says and sees the same thing in your blood work and in your condition. He tells you no more red meat. In fact, your body has been beaten up so much and your heart has taken on so much stress. You actually need to start taking this heart medication. And I'm going to tell you, you need to eat fish for every protein at all of your meals at night. What are you going to say then? Why are you so judgy? I like meat. I don't understand why you doctors are against me. I'm a good person. And then you go and you tell your friends about this saga with the doctors. And they say, hey, those doctors are seeing what we're seeing too. You should listen to them. And then what would you say to your friends? You guys can't judge me. I'm happy with who I am. I'm a good person. We would tell that person, hey, you have to make changes. You are destroying your life. You are self-destructing. As silly as that would seem, no one would tell a doctor those kinds of things, but that is exactly what happens in a local church. And that's what Jesus outlines here with the phrase church, that we use church discipline, though that's not used here. It is when we graciously alert another Christian that the path you're on, brother or sister, though the way you are going is not following the prescription of Jesus. It's not following the Lord that you say you love and that you say raised you from the dead, and that you say you want to follow, so come back this way. But oftentimes what you hear about church discipline is people saying it's, it's unloving. Well, here, listen, I, I hope you see in these next few moments that it, it's not unloving. It's not judgy. It's not ungracious. If it's done biblically, it certainly can be unloving if it's done wrongly. It certain, certainly can be done in an ungracious way. It's, it's not the opposite of being Christ-like, to, to walk in church discipline. It's actually what Jesus wants. And that's the first thing we see about this passage, that Jesus wants it, number one. He teaches it. And so this is what it tells us, that church discipline is actually loving. Church discipline is actually loving. Let's, let's just zoom out. These words from us in Matthew 18 come from the most loving person the world has ever seen. When church discipline is done, according to Jesus' words here, it's an act of grace, an act of dignity and protection for everyone in the church and the church itself. And let's zoom out even, even a little bit more here. What context is Jesus giving this teaching in? This is why it's so good to go through books of the Bible together, because sometimes you may have been familiar with this passage and know about it, and it feels like you're just, you just parachute, you just airdrop right into it. But that's not how this passage flows. 
what is happening immediately before this passage. What does Jesus teach? We are coming right off of the heels of the parable of the lost sheep, where a sheep has gone astray, and the shepherd leaves the 99, goes after the stray, finds it, and he rejoices over that sheep more than all the other ones because he's so glad that sheep has come home. That sheep listened, it came back, and the story is that the shepherd, God, rejoices over it. So, Jesus goes from metaphor to real life now. He's he's saying, look, I've showed you the metaphor of the peril of the sheep that's gone astray. So now about with a Christian that's gone astray, here's what the church does. An unloving shepherd wouldn't care, but Jesus cares. Jesus loves his church. He loves us. That's why this teaching is here. Jesus is teaching us how to bring a stray Christian home. And here's what we need to realize about biblical church discipline for some of us. I know some of us are already uncomfortable. It can be a hard pill to swallow um, for two, I think, two reasons. One, either it's been, we've been in churches where it's been mispracticed or, or it's just misunderstood. Churches that don't do church discipline, um, they harm their witness in the community by just letting hypocrisy and unrepentant sin just define the church. But I think what might be more common to a lot of us is that churches that do church discipline too harshly without the tenderness of Jesus, they too harm their witness in the culture. But here's what's also true. One of the biggest complaints about Christians in the culture and the world is that the church is what? Filled with hypocrisy. The church is a bunch of hypocrites. That's often the case. So when a church does church discipline and wants to remove the hypocrisy out of the church, does the world then turn and say, finally, they got the hypocrisy out. No, what do we hear? What news articles get written? Headline, church removes hypocrisy. No, the headline is church is unloving. Church being sued. And so churches don't do discipline. They don't want to talk about it. They avoid it. But here's what we need to realize. We must follow the words of Christ knowing this is a lose-lose in the world's eyes. This is not something where we'll be applauded for and congratulated for doing, and that doesn't matter. We follow the words of Christ, and we're faithful to him and to one another to carry out the Lord's teaching. And so this is not an option. This is not, Jesus doesn't say, if this happens and you feel up to it, carry it out. No, it's a command from Jesus. And so we must graciously follow it, and it's to summarize, it's in three stages that Jesus outlines. Simply three stages when a Christian sins against another, or your manuscript, there may be a footnote here that also says, if your brother sins, or some kind of big, not just like, oh, they ran a red light, but, but something like, whoa, okay, this is way out of bounds, they're unrepentant, we, we gotta go and address them. Three stages, first one, one-to-one. If they don't repent, you go to them, brother, sister, I... I've seen this, the way you spoke to me, um, what you did to me, that's sinful because of this verse. And if they, oh, you're right, I've been convicted about it too. I've felt that in my my soul, my heart. Please forgive me. It's over, it's done. But if you approach, they're approached. Hey, as a Christian, you know, we can't do this because of this. Don't you see? And if they say, hey, you're getting too much in my life. Well, the group widens, Jesus says in verse 16. Bring two or three others to come alongside and say, brother, sister, we feel like this area in your life is something that is 
out of bounds from God's word. And here's, it's not a preference. It's not an opinion. We have verses. This right here, this right here. And if they listen, it's over. If they don't listen, Jesus says, you widen it even more. Verse 17, tell it to the church. Which, to push pause, we hear that and that's like, whoa. Because our churches nowadays, not even, churches are much bigger than the first century. Um, this would be like, for us, we're thinking, we gotta talk about this in front of 400 people? Well, back then, their churches were 30 people, 60 people, and they were much smaller gatherings, a lot more intimate gatherings, which is probably another thing to talk about how close churches and how much we should know each other. But this is Jesus' point. This escalating is occurring because Jesus loves his church. He wants to protect his church. He doesn't want us to ignore each other. He wants us to care about each other and call each other to follow him. And here's why another reason we know this is love done in love. Church discipline is done with dignity. It's meant to be done with dignity. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you or your brother sins, go and rebuke him in private. Private. Who needs to know? Just you and me. No broadcasting, no spreading it around. No, I'm gonna go get counsel from about 10 other people and mention it in my prayer request time in small group. Y'all pray for me. I've I've got this conflict with Bill and Bill was a real to me and blah, blah. No. Go right to him. And the actual sin that the Bible calls sin, not what you think is sin, not what, you know, you disagree, not some matter of preference or opinion, but an actual straying from the path of walking with Jesus. And it's all meant to be done in a gentle spirit. The golden rule still applies. So Jesus says, treat others how you would wanna be treated. So we approach how we would wanna be approached. And Paul teaches us this in Galatians 6. Galatians 6, Paul says, brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, someone sins, Matthew 18, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, gentleness, watching out for yourselves so that you too won't be tempted to sin in some way. Do you see Paul's teaching, his amplifying of this? The goal is restoration. Restore them, not just rebuke them so you can get them, not just confront them. Confrontation is not the goal. And sometimes that's why some of us just, our skin crawls when we think about church discipline because we've been in churches where confrontation was the goal, where the elders in the church had just trigger fingers and were just ready and excited to do church discipline. There should be no excitement about this. It should be done with a heavy heart and it should be done with gentleness, graciously calling people to realign with Christ. Some of us love confrontation too much. And on the flip side, some of us, want to avoid confrontation at all costs. And neither one is healthy. And so here's what I hope that you'll understand right now, is that every member of Redeemer Church, every member, you bear this ministry. You bear this responsibility. Not just the pastors and elders. Do you notice how many times pastors and elders are referenced in this passage? Zero. You bear this responsibility if you are a member of Redeemer Church. It's not just the elders. The pastors and elders, we might be the channel through which things are communicated. We might be a channel through which things are facilitated, but every member of this church bears the responsibility for the integrity of the church. 
So that's the second thing we learn is that we are all involved. While church discipline is loving, we are all involved and we are all under discipline. This is critical. Because sometimes your healed people talk about discipline as though it's just the final stage, which is in verse 17. If they don't pay attention to the church, Jesus says, let them be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. That final stage where someone is unrepentant, they're, they're not listening to the one, they're not listening to two or three, they're not even listening to the whole church. The, I mean, imagine every member of the church standing on one side of a line and looking at you saying, you're not following Jesus. It's not just this one person's wrong. It's not just that these two or three people are wrong. It's that we are all together saying, come and follow Christ. Imagine that happening to you. If you were in Christ, you would say, you know what? I really gotta, I gotta think about this. I, I gotta turn and go the other way. But Jesus says, if that, other, if that person doesn't turn, doesn't go the other way, treat them like a Gentile, a tax collector. We'll talk more about what that means in a second, but it's basically saying they're being removed from church membership. That the church is saying, we cannot affirm your profession of faith anymore because you're in unrepentant sin. You don't wanna follow Christ. You're ignoring Christ in his, in his church. Sometimes people talk about that last stage as that being the only stage of church discipline, and that's not true. All of this is discipline. Everything in this verse is church discipline. So here, every Christian here, you are under church discipline. Me included, all of us. Anytime, anytime another Christian says to another Christian, hey, when you said this thing, or when you did that, um, I think that was out of line. That's a church discipline moment. A brother or sister lovingly rebuking another brother or sister. This could be from your spouse. So this happens often. Anytime a man has been corrected by his wife about a sin, that was church discipline happening. Every time a spouse has been corrected, rebuked or confronted or challenged by her husband lovingly, that was church discipline. That wasn't just two spouses sharpening each other. That was an act of brothers and sisters in Christ confronting and helping one another. And I, I've had this happen to me. I've written articles about this where I said something too sharp. I, I said something unloving. My, my attitude wasn't Christ-like. And I've had friends and other pastors, my wife, confront me and say, Jeff, I, I think that was out, out of line because of this verse. And because of that, do you, do you see that scenario? And I could see it, and yeah. I'd confess, repent, and go to that person and ask for forgiveness. And it's over. This happens, this is just the Christian life. When Christians sin, this is what we do. This can happen to any Christian at any time because we are submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ, Ephesians 5. And we're submitted to Christ, and we are submitted to the collective witness of the local church. But it's when a Christian doesn't respond the first time, it escalates. It's when you bring in more fire trucks to put out the blaze. One goes out, it's not working, bring in more. It's not working, we gotta bring in like helicopters full of water. It's not working. There's other passages, this is not the only one. First Corinthians 5 is a big one, where Paul says the sin is so grievous in this church, you gotta remove the person. Don't even go through these three steps, just, just get them out. Forgo the steps, get them out and deal with it. And there are situations that happen like that in our church or any church. Abuse doesn't get carried out through these three steps. Physical, child, 
sexual abuse, it doesn't go through these three steps. It goes right to the police. Any, any kind of harm or endangerment, sins of that nature, crimes, they go right to the police and then the police deal with it and then we deal with the, the fallout from whatever the police do. So there, there's wisdom re- required for this. And we gotta remember, this is a family matter. This is not how believers treat unbelievers. This is not how Christians treat non-Christians. This is a in the family of God, brothers and sisters, helping each other follow Jesus. Now, I just want us to get immensely practical with it. It may be ways that we haven't thought about it before. First, how do you respond when you're confronted? Do you listen? Could people even approach you? Would people have to skip step one altogether, the one-to-one, and they're like, we'd have to go, they they wouldn't listen. We gotta bring the group right away. We gotta go to the elders right away because they just wouldn't even listen to that. Is that you? Or would you humbly enough hear from another Christian? Secondly, let's think about this way. Who knows you well enough in the church that they could do this? That they could, meaning they could spot something in your life and they could pull you aside and say, brother, sister, I, I feel like this is out of line from God's word. I mean, who knows you well enough in the church that that could happen? This is why we talk about taking church membership so seriously. So so hear me. If all you do is show up on Sunday mornings, not just at Redeemer, but any church, I know we have visitors and I'm glad you're here, but if if all we do is show up on Sundays, if all you do is show up on Sundays and you have no connection to Christians throughout the week in real life, you are in great danger You have no safety net. You have no help. You you have no one there spotting. You're self-destructing. You're harming yourself. You could be eroding away in isolation all while participating on Sunday mornings because you can slip in, you can sing, you can listen to a sermon, you can slip out and erode your life Monday through Saturday all while being I'm there on Sundays, I'm at church on Sundays, and then you show up at heaven's gates and Jesus say, depart from me, I do not know you. One reason that's happening, one thing why church membership and being involved in a local church is so vital is because it's we're affirming not only what we believe, but we're affirming each other that I know this person and they know Christ. I know this person and they know Christ. So do you know anybody well enough that this could even happen? Third, let's think about the second stage when Jesus says bring two or three. Could you be one of the two or three that are brought along? Would people think of you in that way? Meaning, is your reputation in the church community such that you would be considered helpful in this kind of scenario? That you would be considered godly, trusted. They're not gonna gossip about it. They're gonna be mature and helpful in this situation. They're gonna be wise, they're, they're, gonna, they're not gonna fly off the handle. They're not gonna freak out on this person. They're gonna be helpful, wise, and godly in the situation. Would people think of you that way? Why not? We should think that we could be one of those other two or three that would be helpful. They'd go the other way. Do we, do we even know two or three other people in the church? If you only know your spouse in the church, you are not functioning in the local church. 
Do you have two or three other trusted Christian friends that you could reach out to and go, hey, I need help in, in this situation? Would you be willing to call someone to follow Christ? Some of us would be too afraid to enter into this moment. Would you be able to point to the scriptures and point to this person's situation and say they are, they are not lining up and this is how we have to go, go together. So listen, church, you all bear this responsibility. Tell it, Jesus says, tell it to the church. Doesn't say tell it to the preaching pastor. He doesn't say go tell it to the elders. Tell it to the church, all of you. This is part of your ministry. And we're all under it and we're all involved. And typically how it's played out at our church and it has sadly a few times is that there's, yeah, pastors get involved. It goes from stage one, stage two. And then stage three is like pastors start getting involved. And we have conversation after conversation after conversation. Uh, you can't pursue this unbiblical divorce because of these reasons. You, you, you can't keep carrying on in this activity because of these reasons in God's word. And I could tell you 99% of the conversations that we've had, and I see a lot of the elders in this room, they almost always revolve around marriage. It's almost always some kind of someone digging in their heels, wanting to pursue a sin revolving around marriage that they should not pursue. And if they don't listen to our calls, if they haven't listened to stage one, they haven't listened to stage two, now we're kind of in the middle. And if they don't listen to us, we tell them, we're gonna tell the church. Not on Sunday morning, because I understand this is not representative of our church. We have non-members, we have visitors here. I'm so glad you're all here. That's why we have our elder-led prayer and family meetings where we talk about stuff that the church family needs to know. And we would get before the church at that members meeting and say, here's what's going on with John Dome. Um, we've met with them, it started this way, it started this way, and it continued this way, and then we met with them, we appealed to them, and we told them if they didn't respond and repent, we're coming to a meeting like this. And so we're telling you, the church, that you should reach out to them and, and tell them we love you, but you're self-destructing. You're, you're acting outside of the will of Christ. So, so come back to them. And notice Jesus doesn't give any timetables here. There's nothing like meet with them once, twice, then it's over. That's wisdom from Christ. There, we should be patient with one another. Continuing meeting, continuing calling them to follow Jesus. Tell them to come back. And so typically, just historically, what we've done, we might meet with that person, announce it to the church at an at a elder-led prayer and, and family meeting, and then we would tell that person, hey, I mean, each, each case is so different, but we'd say, by the next time we meet, we're, we're hoping you've repented by then. If not, by that next time, we're gonna put it before the church and then we're going to put before the church that you should be removed from membership. Because the elders just, you know, we manage the rosters and roles and information, but we would put it before the church, not as though we've made this decision, but we're putting it out there and if anyone has any disagreement, they, they should reach out to us. It's not a shunning. We wouldn't put their pictures up on the doors and, and tell Officer Justin, don't let them in. I'd hope they would come in. But more often than not, they don't want to. And more often than not, when we see, they don't like just go to another church. They just stop going to church altogether. And I've sat in these meetings with people and I tell them, do you understand that if you go and do this, you're violating 2 Corinthians 5. You're, you're, you're violating Ephesians 5. Do, do you see? Do you see that verse and what that means? Do you agree? And they go, yeah, I agree with what that means. I say, you're saying you don't care? Don't care. 
So you just want this sin. You don't care that it's gonna wreck your family. You don't care it's gonna wreck your testimony. All those mission trips you went on, all the times you raised your hand in church, you are okay saying, all of that was fake. I don't care. I want this more than I want Christ. That's what you're saying. Yep, that's what I'm saying. So you understand that we think now that you're not a Christian. You never were one. Unless you repent. Don't care. Don't care. They're shunning us. We're not shunning them. We would never tell you, don't talk to them again. Don't approach them. When Jesus says in verse, look at verse 17. If he doesn't pay attention, even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. This is not a shunning. Would, would Christians in the first century, would they talk to Gentiles? Yep. Would they interact with tax collectors? Yeah. So Jesus isn't saying, don't talk to them. What he's saying is, view them as someone who is not a part of the covenant community. At this stage in redemptive history, in the first century church, right here in Matthew 18, Gentiles and tax collectors were not typically a part of the church yet. And so he's saying, if this last stage has to be carried out, don't shun them, evangelize them. View them as someone that's not in the church yet. And so if you're at HEB, and you see them on the aisle, don't think, I don't really need milk that bad, and go somewhere else. No, no, no. Go towards them. Hey, how are you? Good, good, you know, I'm all right. Hey, we miss you. Why don't you come back? Why don't you humble yourself and come back? We will rejoice over you. Like that one sheep that went astray and came back. We will rejoice over you more than the other 300 members. Who cares? But we want you back. So it's not a shunning. It's teaching us to evangelize them. And we see them at the store. You see them at the soccer fields to invite them to come back to Christ. See, it's not just that they're ignoring the church. They're actually ignoring Jesus. Jesus is involved in church discipline. Look at verses 18 and 20. Look at what the Lord says. 18, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. So what's Jesus saying? It sounds a little confusing. At first, people read this and they think of though, it's, it's saying like whatever's done in church, it, it reflects what's being done in heaven. That's not true. Look at the grammar. Look at verse 18 again. Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound. Already happened. Whatever you loose will have been loose. It's already occurred. So Jesus is saying, if, church, if the church disciplines someone, the church together, and it binds someone with a verdict of they're not following Christ, they're outside of the covenant, it's because that's already occurred in heaven. Heaven has already said, this person is not following Christ. Jesus is saying, I've already said, they're not following me. They're under discipline. And the church is now following it. And whatever's been loosed, Heaven's membership roster already reflects it. The church is just now catching up. But if you loose them, they, they're restored. They're no longer. Just like in the parable of the unforgiving servant that's put in prison, that's bound in chains. If they're no longer bound by discipline, they've been loosed. 
It's because they've been loosed in heaven, because they've already asked the Father for forgiveness. They've already repented. They've already had it applied to them by the Holy Spirit, and now they're going to go to the church and say, forgive me, I was wrong, and it's, they're loosed. It's over. And it's verse 20. You may feel like it changed gears here, verse 20. For where two or three gathered together in my name, I am there among them. You might have read that and thought, why is Jesus talking about a prayer meeting all of a sudden in this church discipline passage? He's not. <laughs> This, this verse is not about prayer meetings, and I, some of my favorite pastors and preachers and commentators and teachers reference this verse all the time where when you start a church plant, or just two or three, Jesus is there. When you're in a small group, just two or three, Jesus is there. Listen, that's true anytime. When you're by yourself, Jesus is there. When you're alone, Christ is real. He is omnipresent. He's there. So what is Jesus saying here? Where else are two or three mentioned? Verse 16. When two or three are rebuking and confronting another Christian, Jesus says, I'm there. Jesus is involved in church discipline. Jesus says, when you go and you're confronting a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ over something that's, that's outside of my word, Jesus says, I'm there too. Count me, number me as a part of that group. Not only does Jesus teach this, but Jesus says, I am there in full support because I love my sheep and I want my stray sheep to come back home. Jesus gives us the schematic to protect the sheep, to help the sheep, and to show people that think they're believers that, hey, we don't want you to be tricked that you're a believer. Because this professing Christian isn't just ignoring the church, they're ignoring Jesus. So beloved, if you ever get approached and sin is pointed out, be quick to listen and, and slow to speak, slow to bow up and defend and, and be ready to repent, be ready to, and be ready to ask for forgiveness. And if you're on the other side, be ready to give forgiveness. That's why Jesus gives this parable of debt forgiveness. What happens? Peter follows up after Jesus finishes talking. Peter approached him, verse 21, Lord, how many times should I forgive another Christian when they sin against me? As many as seven, Jewish culture thought three times, man, three times is a lot. If you give somebody three times, you're like super mature. Peter says, I know, seven's probably good, right, Jesus? I've read Genesis, seven's there a lot. <laughs> Jesus amps it up. What does Jesus say? 22, I tell you, not as many as seven times, but 77 times. So Jesus is just saying, hey, huge number. Large number, not just three. And church, I think there are two ways we can really mess up forgiveness. First, we refuse to ask for forgiveness. We don't humble ourselves. We don't admit our wrong and go and say, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? I sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And not just, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's garbage. That's not repentance. I'm sorry if you were offended. Clearly they were. But actually, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. No justification. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Please forgive me. Second way, we can refuse to grant forgiveness. And that's why this next parable occurs. That's why there's these bookends, the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the unforgiving servant sandwiching church discipline. Because naturally, we wonder, well, how many times do we gotta go through this? How many times do I have to forgive someone? Is, is it fool me once? Shame on you, fool me twice, we're, we're done. Jesus says 70 times seven. 
bigger. Jesus is gonna clear up misconceptions about forgiveness. By saying 70 times seven, he is saying there is no limit to how many times a repentant sinner can be forgiven. There is no cap on God's mercy. But there is one thing we must be clear about forgiveness. And in the parallel account in Luke 17, so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that tell a lot of the same stories, just different angles. In Luke 17, Jesus says this. Listen, it's on the screen. Jesus says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. I and mean, this is just like Matthew 18. And if he repents, that's key, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you saying, I re- seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So here's one of the first things that we gotta clarify about forgiveness. Forgiveness is conditional. Forgiveness is conditional. Jesus says in Luke 17, if he repents, what do we read in the passage today? If he listens, what do we hear in the parable? If they ask for mercy, it's conditional. And uh, the reason why we don't think so is because we feel like, well, I'm gonna be bitter, I'm gonna be held hostage to this. You're not. We should have a posture of forgiveness. We're not being bitter, we're not being resentful, we're not being vengeful. But you can't forgive someone who doesn't want it. You can't forgive someone who doesn't ask for it and who doesn't think they did anything wrong. How could you go to somebody, hey, you sinned against me, and they say, no, I didn't. Well, I forgive you anyways. They don't want it. And it's clear that forgiveness is conditional because there's more than one stage in Matthew 18. If forgiveness wasn't conditional, Matthew 18 would be a lot shorter. It would be approach them. It's over. Or don't even approach them. Just forgive them. You see? And what do the scriptures say? Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive us? We surrendered. We asked for mercy. We've turned from our sin. We repented and say, I've sinned against you. Forgive me. And we receive the forgiveness of sins. If forgiveness wasn't conditional, then we would all be universalists. Then everybody would go to heaven. But that's not how God works. See, when someone is remorseful, and confesses and asks for forgiveness and is demonstrating repentance, demonstrating that turning, Jesus says, forgive. We see that sin no longer as between us, no longer as wanting to separate us from from each other. They're freed from it, we're freed from it. It doesn't define our relationship anymore, forgiven. So, So hear me, if you feel like you're owed forgiveness from someone, you cannot wait for them to come to you. You must go to them, follow Jesus' outline, a fellow Christian, go to them in love and rebuke them and then see it as covered by the blood of Jesus. There is so much wrong teaching about forgiveness. That's why I just have some of these things up there. Forgiveness is conditional and forgiveness doesn't mean it's fine. You hear this a lot. You go and approach somebody or they come to you and they say, will you forgive me? And you say, it's fine. It's not fine. No sin is fine. That cheapens the moment. Forgiveness doesn't mean it's fine because we needed Christ to die naked on a tree in our place. 
crucified to pay for these sins. And so for us to say, oh, it's fine. We don't just cheapen this moment of reconciliation that's possible between us, but we're cheapening the cross of Christ itself. Forgiveness doesn't just mean it's fine. Forgiveness means it's paid for by Jesus. Forgiveness also doesn't mean if you forgive somebody, there's no consequences. You could still lose your job. You could still lose things in your life. You could lose your ministry. You could go to jail. Forgiveness doesn't mean those things go away. And if you've been reading in the CBR journal, you see this in the life of David. What David did with Bathsheba and Uriah, the Lord forgave him, but it doesn't remove all the consequences. You see this in, in, in our own lives. Forgiveness isn't cheap. Forgiveness is costly. And forgiveness is often misunderstood. That's why Jesus gives us this parable. This guy owns an astronomical debt. This is the equivalent of saying a zillion dollars. If you were to calculate the value to try this 10,000 talents, it's like saying a big, big, big number. The numerical value would be like $6 billion. So a guy shows up to his house. Hey, $6 billion debt, let's pay it up. He doesn't have that. Someone shows up at your house. Hey, you got, I want my $6 billion back. Give me a second. You're you're toast. This guy's toast. He's thrown into prison. Can't pay it back, but he asks for mercy. Begs. And the gracious, compassionate guy, the master, 27, then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, forgave him, forgave him, forgave him the loan. Because he asked for mercy. Released, doesn't have, not a payment plan. He just, I've absorbed it, it's gone. It's not hanging over you anymore. But then what happens? He goes out to a guy that owes him the equivalent of $12,000. Hey, I want my 12,000. The guy says the exact same thing he said to the $6 billion debt. He says, forget it, puts him in prison. The other master hears about it and what does he say? Verse 32, you wicked servant. I forgave you all, all, all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Beloved, this is Jesus' point. He is a merciful king and we've been showered with his mercy. Jesus has paid all of the debt of all of our sins that we owe, that we could never pay back to God. We deserve to be locked in an eternal dungeon where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. We deserve to be tied up there forever. But Jesus says, I'll pay your debt. I will take the debt of sin that you owe and I will pay for it in full. And he's nailed to the cross paying for all of our sins. And he rises from the dead by the power of God showing payment accepted. Verification done. And if you know that, if you know the great mercy, and then you eat and you drink the Lord's Supper week after week, but then you hold a grudge against another Christian who's asked for forgiveness. You've praised Christ for your sins being forgiven. The zillion dollar debt of sin that you owe, but then you refuse to forgive that friend that snapped at you or who made fun of you or who your spouse who didn't keep their promise 
and they've asked for forgiveness. They've demonstrated repentance. And Jesus says, you wicked servant. Shouldn't you have had mercy? And the mercy that I've shown you. And Jesus says at the end of the parable, if you override a plea for forgiveness, you've misunderstood God's forgiveness. And you may not have it. Do you have it? Have you been forgiven? This is supernatural. See, forgiveness is foreign to us. Forgiveness was not hardwired into Adam and Eve in the garden. They didn't have that capacity naturally to forgive one another. This is why our culture is a giant cancel culture, where as soon as we disagree with somebody, as soon as we don't like what somebody says, it's over, done, get rid of them. I don't want to hear from them again. Cancel them, it's out. There is no cancel culture in the kingdom of Christ. There is a forgiveness culture. You're welcomed back. You're in. You're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. I'm forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And the gospel is the fuel we put into the engine of our hearts and minds. Forgiveness is foreign to humanity, but we receive it from on high. And now we forgive one another as God and Christ forgives us. So beloved, turn from sin. Call each other to turn from sin. Ask for forgiveness and forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you whenever a Christian sins. May God help us. Let's pray. King Jesus, help us. We, we don't really understand how to forgive most of the time. We don't know how to do this. That's why we need your words. Not only do we need your words, but we need your model of it. We need your cross. We need your blood. We need your empty tomb. We need you ascended. We need you sitting at the Father's right hand, reconciled, and us reconciled to you. So help us, King Jesus, that there's anybody that we're holding sin against, that we've said we forgive them with our mouths, but you said in our hearts, from the bottom of our hearts, we're still harboring it. We still think of it right when we see them. Lord, give us, give us the Holy Spirit now, the spirit of reconciliation by which we can forgive and be forgiven. Help us, King Jesus. There's so many ways we mess this up, but the ways that we mess it up don't even compare to the number of ways that you can make things right. So help us to pursue holiness, help us to pursue reconciliation, and help us to really love one another the way you have loved us. Teach us how, King Jesus. And it's in your name and in your blood that we pray. Amen.